Greetings everyone, my name is John Greenwood and I'm here with Drs. Jim Lantry and Mike McCurdy and we're from the University of Maryland and the Maryland CC Project and boy do we have something exciting for you today. We actually have Drs. Maury Hurwich and Dr. Mark Walsh which is uh, quite famous or infamous, I'm not quite sure, but uh, definitely an outstanding physician. These guys are from the uh, Memorial Hospital in South Bend, Indiana and have definitely become one of the innovators in the use of TEG for targeted blood component therapy for coagulopathy. And uh, aside from Dr. Walson, Dr. Hurwich, we also have a very special guest as well. Her name is Miss Angela Knight, as well as her mother and father who were with her on the day she went to Memorial Hospital. Now, Miss Knight fortunately met Dr. Hurwich uh, during a very special time in her life, but uh, the potential to become a tragic time uh, when she was personally affected by the use of a tag and a resuscitation. Uh, we're extremely fortunate to have her join us today and tell us her story. Miss Knight actually reached out to us not too long ago to tell us how much she loved the tag. Uh, but uh, so we couldn't resist and we had to have her on and uh, tell us all about how she became in close contact with the tag. Uh, so, Dr. Walsh, why don't you do us the honors and uh, get us started. Tell us a little about yourself. Sure. Uh, my name is Mark Walsh. I'm an internist and an emergency physician at Memorial Hospital. And um, I work at the Keck Transgene Center with Dr. Frank Castellino on uh, the TEG and uh, the coagulopathy of uh, trauma and other aspects of acquired coagulopathy. I'm, I'm Maury Hurwitz. Uh, anesthesiologist. I've been at Memorial Hospital here for 28 years. I'm currently the medical director of anesthesia at Memorial, but I practice all aspects of anesthesia. I do a fair amount of cardiothoracic and all aspects of general anesthesia, uh, anesthesia general surgery, and do my share of uh, the obstetric uh, anesthesia as well at Memorial Hospital South Bend. I, Dr. Walsh is a proud Notre Dame graduate, but I'm from Indiana University. We won't hold that against you, don't worry. Uh, so we're gonna start off, uh, Miss Knight, can you just walk us through maybe a brief recollection of what you remember? Sure, um, so I was admitted at uh, about 7.30 in the morning on September 11th. Um, it was a Wednesday and you know, came in very excited to be uh, induced and have my second child, a boy, um, and I think it was probably, you know, about uh, 8.30 that I first met Dr. Hurwich and uh, he administered an epidural, so it was quite a relief to see him um, the first time around. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, you know, uh, my water uh, hadn't uh, broken yet. I was, you know, talking to my parents and my husband, and uh, it seems like a nurse had recently snuck me a little snack because obviously I'd been without food and water for hours. Um, I think we were, you know, joking and, and, you know, telling stories, and the next thing I knew, I could not breathe. I turned to my left and just looked at my dad straight right in your eyes and said, I can't breathe. Call someone. I can't breathe. And just this incredible, like, like heat from, from hell kind of just like rising up my face. Just 
that that's all I felt. That's all I knew, and it was lights out from there. Um, so in terms of my story going in, it's very brief, and it happened in a flash. Uh, my mother and father might be able to to tell me, and and you guys, um, you know what happened uh, after that. I can only from piece together from the stories I've heard and from the medical records uh, the enormous amount of activity that followed. I'm Paul, I'm Angela's father, and as soon as she turned to me and said she couldn't breathe, instantly her face turned the beatest red of anything I've ever seen in my life, and her neck, and her neck just started swelling up uh, to like double the, the size that it should be. And we immediately ran out and got a, a nurse in, and they came in and pulled her out, cords and everything, right out of the wall, and got her in. And, and I don't know anything other than that. We thought she actually, well, we heard code blue a couple times, and all uh, I know is we're eternally grateful to the, the fine people here at Memorial Hospital because yes. they did a wonderful job. All the way through. Saved our daughter. This is uh, Mike McCurdy. Uh, I was wondering if we could next move to a discussion with Dr. Hurwich to uh, address the role of the tag and the resuscitation and the management of her bleeding specifically. And, um, and how did you do differ from what is normally done in, the, in, the, um, in most places, I'd say? Let me just start with uh, to follow up from where Angela was. You know, they they immediately rushed her back to our C-section operating one of our two operating rooms for C-sections, which are on the same in the same suite as the birthing suites. They called me. Uh, I was the anesthesiologist in house, and you know that. And I heard the code call, and I ran to the operating room where she was, and. I've been called in my career a lot of times for emergency C-sections, but I'd never seen anything like what I saw when I came into the room, which was uh, the, only, the only way that I could tell Angela was alive was that she was trying to breathe and she was vomit, vomiting profusely, because otherwise her color there were no vital signs. Her skin color and the ashen look uh, were were things I've seen before, but but uh, not not something that you see in somebody that's doing very well. I saw that they were getting ready to start the C-section. The epidural was fine. I went ahead and intubated her and started to resuscitate uh, her while they were getting the baby out. Um, again, uh, I, I was getting, I had no pulses, I had no oximeter, I had no blood pressure, I started to give some drugs, I decided I needed to give some chest compressions to move the epinephrine and bicarb around, so I actually started some chest compressions, I started to get some electrical activity and started to get some CO2 back on my uh, gas analyzers so I knew we were we were getting her back some they got the baby out extremely quickly the baby was you know uh, was 
alive and uh, uh, showed signs that it was uh, had not had a major problem. She Angela started to come come back as far as uh, uh, with chest compressions, with some couple rounds of code drugs. Uh, the team from the ICU came up, after, and I had a pulse. I had oximetry. I took her to the ICU. This is this was all done. I looked back at the record in about a 30-minute period that the whole C-section was completed. Uh, you know, about, probably about 10 minutes of an active code. I took her to the intensive care unit. We had venous access. She was still, you know, blood pressure was low. I had started some levofed, I believe. Uh, I, I had, arterial access was a problem. She was shut down. I put in a femoral arterial line pretty quickly. And, uh, you know, at the time that I put the femoral art line in, which was within a few minutes of getting to the intensive care unit, it was already apparent. This is about, you know, probably about 35 minutes after the C-section and about four, maybe 40 minutes after her sitting up with her symptoms, it was also apparent that she, she was bleeding around my art line. She was started to bleed from her wound. She was bleeding from her peripheral IVs. And in my mind, she was heading into, into DIC. And with the cardiac collapse, I hadn't exactly heard the story of what happened in the room, but immediately in my mind I thought i would not seen one luckily enough but I thought she probably had a, uh, a, a amniotic fluid embolism and like I said I do a fair amount of cardiac and we do our share of trauma and I'm a big believer somebody starts bleeding profusely I'm gonna have to transfuse them profusely and I'm gonna have to try and figure this out I'm a, I, I immediately call for the perfusionist to come in uh, to start running some tags for me. Interesting. So, Dr. Horwich, what kind of labs did you send right away? What type of blood products did you start running? Um, and about how long did things take until they finally started to come back? Well, I mean, uh, clinically, I knew she was in DIC. We sent labs. I didn't wait for any labs. I, uh, I immediately started our massive transfusion protocol because she was hypotensive. Um, I think we had an initial low hemoglobin, but I knew she was in DIC from a clinical picture. I had Eric come in and start doing tags. I started to shotgun fresh frozen plasma and some uh, platelets and basically treating it as if a massive bleeding, massive being the keyword, bleeding trauma uh, until I had lab values to, to direct me. Looking back, and the fact that we do a lot of tags here, and I'm very familiar with it because we started it for you know post uh, cardiopulmonary bypass uh, analysis. Uh, I got tag results back. Of course, the first one was basically that nothing is working uh, far faster than I got my regular coagulation panel back. In fact, I think we sent two coagulation panels that we had to keep harping on to get the results of before we finally got word uh, from the lab that well your samples were no good well you know in retrospect our, what they were calling our samples were no good were because you know it was uh, in Florida DIC and they just weren't getting a result on their test. I, I, I'm a big believer in the tag we had had Eric here he knows what he's doing he runs a tag he immediately got the first one done and was on the phone with his cohort uh, Ed Evans who in my mind knows as much about the clotting cascades uh, 
as any physician I've ever met, and I, I defer to Ed and to Eric to direct what I'm going to give. I had already given, started giving fresh frozen and some platelets. They, they looked at the tag. They, they directed to give some cryoprecipitate, and we had a quick discussion about whether to throw in activated seven. And we had recently, you know, we had recently talked about the plasma concentrates, and uh, we had a quick discussion within fairly quick time. Even though we started to get some response on the tag, it wasn't nowhere near normal. But we started to get some response with what we were doing. At this point. We had, we had brought her back from a cardiopulmonary complete collapse, but she was bleeding to death in front of our eyes, and, and it was from a coagulopathy. Phenomenal. So run us through your massive transfusion protocol, and then uh, also discuss sort of what you saw in the tag and how you went about approaching those abnormalities. The initial thing I can remember giving was uh, fresh frozen plasma and, and, uh, and platelets, and and I, I, in my mind, was treating her to a great extent like a massive trauma that's bleeding to death. And we don't always do the one-to-one-to-one, but uh, I've been convinced that, that, in my mind, if I've got bleeding that I can't stop, I'm going to c- try and come as close to one-to-one-to-one as I can with the uh, blood, fresh, frozen, and, and platelets. To some extent, I think that's kind of our goal around here is one-to-one-to-one in a trauma situation. We know we can't get it. I'm always happy if I can get, you know, one-to-two maybe with fresh frozen. And if we get the platelets, you know, back at the at around the one, that's pretty good. But uh, that's my goal. We bring the, the blood bank. When we put that in, they, they are on the scene with somebody. They've got all the products right there in the room with you. They, they help uh, uh, keep track of all that for you. Great. So after you started your resuscitation with one to one to one, or at least as close as you could get, run us through what the tag looked like to you. The first tag, the initial one that you got back, so completely flat. And I'm I'm going to say, look, I'm not an expert. I'm not an expert in analyzing tags. I I believe in the tag, and I have a great relationship with my perfusionist. So I let. I let them read it for me, and I believe in their in theirs. But I it was it was very telling to me that Eric, who's a very experienced with the tag, when he ran it and came back, and he said, "It's flat. I've never seen this before." Uh, and he was on the phone with his partner Ed uh, Evans and, and saying, "You know, we we've never seen this before." So I we, we were going with. You know, I guess as much as possible, the one-to-one-to-one, and uh, at least, Mark, is this true, the first three were flat? Yeah, the first three uh, tags were flat. Wow, so completely flat, no clotting activity whatsoever, fulminant DIC. About how long was it until you finally got somewhat of a tag tracing uh, after your resuscitation? About, yeah, about 30 minutes later, we started to get what we would call an abnormal, an abnormal tag, but at least it was, it, you know, at least it showed that the machine hadn't completely malfunctioned. And then, then, uh, my understanding is that that uh, well, we knew fibrinogen was going to be low, but that's that's when we got the one that is about roughly 30 minutes after 
that's when we ordered up some cryo and started talking about the Novo 7 and the PCC. And and we gave so, the... So with a flat tag, there has to be some thought at some point that maybe there's some excessive fibrinolysis going on. Was there ever discussion about adding uh, anti-fibrinolytic, uh, like Amicar, TXA, anything like that? He, he The question came up about Amicar... And, and he didn't like it. And giving all the new products, he said he's very fearful of giving the Amicar on top of it that we would might stroke her or do something something sure. bad. So we they had that discussion. We I wasn't necessarily, you know, I was still managing her blood pressure. I was actually literally with the ICU nurses, hanging the blood, hanging the products, uh, and and doing all that at the same time. And then the serial tags dialed in from. Uh, you know, another about every 20 to 30 minutes. And then about how long was it? Uh, how long was it until you finally got to a normal tag? Yeah, um, it was about two and a half hours from the first tag. And at that time, did it appear that she had become hemostatic? Absolutely. Dr. Hurwich, uh, Jim Lantry here. How far into the resuscitation do you think you changed from the standard one to one to one so you started actively treating the tag itself. As soon as I got a tag that wasn't flatline. <laughs> okay. I wasn't gonna. I wasn't gonna change anything on a flatline, which basically, I mean, you could argue that we were still treating the tag because we were throwing everything we could. But as soon as we had a tag, as soon as we had a tag that we've seen before, we we treat. You know, I do. We treat the tag, and uh, uh, I. And, and the clinical picture changed as the in correlation with the tag. I mean, we have heart surgery that, that sometimes the clinical picture, you know, doesn't necessarily reflect. And so what are you going to believe? Somebody that's got a chest and they're still bleeding or the blood test that says they shouldn't be, well, you're forced to sometimes not necessarily treat it the same way. But these two things coincided. So, so I, I went with what the tag uh, showed us. So that's when I changed the management of what we were going to give her. Thanks, Dr. Hurwich. Now, Dr. Walsh, your, um, your hospital has integrated tag into treating a lot of bleeding patients. Um, is there a protocol that you use that you could specifically discuss about when you integrate the tag into care of a bleeding patient? Uh, yes. We uh, have adopted the protocol that we've borrowed from the anesthesiologists who run cardiothoracic surgery. And that basically uh, reflects uh, the administration of blood components based on abnormalities of the TEG. And specifically, the TEG tracing looks like a shovel that you don't want to work. You want a short handle and a fat, thick blade that's not pointed. And that's what a normal tag is. And there are four components to this shovel that correlate with the blood components that we're going to give. And so if the handle's long, we're going to give fresh frozen plasma, and we're going to give, if the patient is volume overloaded, as uh, Angela Knight was in pulmonary edema ventilated, well then we'll have to find something else to give and that would be factor 7a as well as uh, prothrombin complex concentrate. That is the enzymatic phase of co coagulation, the, the, uh, the cascade that we talk about. 
if the angle of that blade is very flat, then they need fibrinogen, meaning that you'll give them cryoprecipitate. And if the blade is very narrow, then you'll give them, in addition to cryoprecipitate, you'll give them platelets for the thickness of that blade reflects the link between the fibrinogen, fibrin, and platelet as it makes its maximum contraction. And then if the blade starts to taper down and there's evidence of fibrinolysis, then and only then will we give tranexamic acid. So that in a nutshell is the protocol that we have adopted. Once you do a few of these, you get a drift and when you look at your tags, you kind of know what to do just when you look at them based on that kind of uh, algorithm that we use. Mark, this is Mike. Um, a couple questions. First, is the tag used for all massive, massive transfusion protocols once, once initiated in the hospital is number one. Number two is um, once an MTP is activated, does a perfusionist come in for all those tags? I think that that's what I was going to say is, is uh, I believe the perfusionist is called when a trauma activation. And we talk about this so much at our trauma symposium and at our, at our monthly trauma M&M uh, that all the anesthesiologists and all the surgeons that are part of the trauma panel, once a surgical patient has a massive transfusion protocol, even before then, the, the perfusionist is in the loop. They are part of the trauma panel, so they are notified, and then they will be called. The emergency room doctors are in the loop if there is a massive uh, uh, hemorrhage on a trauma patient. It is part of our protocol, and 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 if it's not part of our protocol, it's it's part of the culture of the anesthesia department and the trauma surgeons that uh, that we will call them in. You know, I'm not sure if the massive transfusion outside of the operating room, if it's it's if it's as universal, but it is universal for us, and it's a first it's a first line and. Um, you know, it has been now for for a few years. We rely on the information. If it's not a massive transfusion protocol, but it's a uh, you know head trauma and uh, we've got unexpected bleeding, you know, any members of our trauma surgeons, neurosurgeons, the va general vascular surgeons, uh, uh, you know, even some of the orthopods, uh, unexplained bleeding. It's not uncommon for us at two in the morning to call the perfusionist in to get to get a tag and, and we believe we've had success because of the results of the tag and I'll also tell you we get an answer faster than than sending uh, normal <coughs> laboratory values I mean Angela was the extreme you know the usual patient in shock uh, you know even if they're in DIC you know I'll grant you that maybe 45 minutes later maybe a half hour whatever we'll get we'll get abnormal labs but you know we, we literally would have been hours trying to get labs that anybody believed because her uh, normal clotting studies were so off the map that the person doing the test wasn't going to report them out they thought their machine wasn't working or that the blood had hemolyzed before it got to them where the tag you know the tag we get a result 
pretty quickly. And they'll get even even while it's still running, the machine is in is in our is in the perfusion office, which is in the center core of surgery. So for traumas, we get you know they're right side outside the room. So we've we've adopted that as our go-to. And and for the tag itself, is it measured in the lab? or with a bedside machine? They do all of the controls, they do all the quality work. It is not, it is not done in our lab. It's, it's a perfuse, basically Perfusion's own TEG lab, which is in the major OR surgery. And, and with what frequency do you check it? Is it largely based on the trend of prior TEGs in a clinical response? Or um, in somebody in such as uh, Angela's case, you know, it, you, know you've, you clearly did many of them um, uh, hoping that you get a response initially. You're right. Once we once we have, you know, depending on how abnormal, but once we have an abnormal and we treat it, you know, there might be, uh, you know, one follow-up that that confirms that uh, a little while later, depending on the situation. And uh, uh, this was certainly the extreme to do whatever we did, seven of them, I guess. Or I think six of them, and one of them was a repeat. But, but usually would be another repeat depending on the clinical picture and, and also then the clinical picture is uh, you know if it's a pelvic fracture and, and long bone fractures and we believe we're still having trouble with bleeding it and the tag isn't normal or getting where we expect it to be it might get repeated uh, a, a third time but usually probably like uh, other labs and maybe a half hour an hour later we repeat it see if we're on the right track to confirm that we're on the right track and 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 go from there. So so what I think is particularly fascinating about this particular case as well as a lot of the research in the ED that Dr. Walsh has done is um, not so much that the tag is used for bleeding. I mean that's why the tag was developed. It's been used for years in the OR and cardiothoracic surgery as I'm sure you've done. Now, but um, I think where the real paradigm shift has occurred with, with you all and what is sort of changing the face of transfusion um, clinically that, you know, surprisingly hasn't been done. It, it just takes a, a well-oiled machine like the one that you all have and good communication and the infrastructure and understanding of its uh, importance. But I think the paradigm shift has been uh, using the tag in situations outside of this kind of situation that has been uh, that that has traditionally needed it. I think this particular case is an example of saying, you know, yeah, she's an uh, obstetric patient um, that's requiring emergent C-section and frank DIC from a amniotic fluid embolus, but. Um, you know, th- we need to employ what we know works in other situations and uh, employ it um, not just in general, but right now, early, aggressive, and, uh, and use it with, uh, in sort of a goal-directed fashion that minimizes unnecessary therapies. Well, I think that's right, and I think, uh, you know, when we spread it out and because of... Uh, Mark and because of Ed Evans and because of getting, you know, Mark getting Notre Dame involved and then getting uh, the people in Denver involved and actually really pushing it in the trauma situation. You know, we became, I think, a quick believer because this wasn't the first, this was the first amniotic fluid embolism, but this wasn't the first time we've used the test on an obstetric patient. And, uh, 
and, and we've used it on, you know, our neurosurgeons use it a lot, you know, and, and like I said, we, we believe in it and that, you know, you've got a good test, we believe in the information, we believe we can get good uh, interpretation and can help us, and that can help us not only in a cardiothoracic patient, but it can help us in an OB patient, it can help, help us in a blunt trauma patient, it can help us anytime we're confused or worried about bleeding and we're going to have to give uh, goal-directed, that's the way I look at it, goal-directed therapy to try and reverse a coagulopathy. So uh, thank you both for uh, answering our questions. I did have just something to add. Uh, it's pretty common knowledge that if you blindly give blood products, you risk not only volume overload, but pulmonary edema, cardiac damage, etc. And it's also a direct cost to the patient's well-being and to the hospital for if you use blood products that maybe one patient didn't need, but another did. Have you guys seen any growing trends since you started integrating TAG into all of your massive transfusions? Say less side effects, shorter ICU days, less costs overall? <coughs> uh, remember, we're a uh, level two trauma center and I don't have, we don't have legions of statisticians to do linear regression analysis on retrospective data. We do prospective observational studies. We know exactly who our patients are when they come into our, our, our database. However, we did look at uh, the year before and a year after the inception of uh, widespread goal-directed blood component therapy as, uh, as directed by the TEG. And we looked at fresh frozen plasma wastage and we went from 390 units of fresh frozen plasma that were wasted to 94 in one year. And uh, no doubt there was a Hawthorne effect. However, uh, we focus our attention on, on the practical use of it and on individual cases. But other centers who have adopted the TEG and we have been their sort of mentors, have found significant reduction <clears throat> in blood products uh, consumption, number one. Number two, the literature has shown that both in trauma and cardiothoracic surgery, there's a reduction in blood product use. And one significant area where you'll have a reduction in blood product use is in the futile patient, where we once would throw one to 200 units of blood components to a young person. You know, after you've given 40 or 50 units, 30 to 50 units, and you still got uh, a tag that's flatlined or looks like a, a small fish, uh, you're not gonna get these patients back. And then you can stop. So there are many, many areas proven, not just in our institution, with our reduction of uh, uh, fresh frozen plasma wastage, but with an overall reduction of blood product uh, consumption. Thanks, Mark. Uh, last question. We've talked a lot about traumatic bleeding, obstetrical bleeding, and coagulopathy. What is your sort of understanding of the literature in terms of medical bleeding? So thoughts about like the GI bleeders or the non-surgical bleeding. You know, what, what's the role of TEG in these types of patients? Is there one? Well, I think, yeah, I think there's a role. I think, you know, I, I really don't know for sure where we stand, but obviously, you know, we get our fair share, fair, fair share in the ICU of GI bleeds. I know they had a significant 
one up there yesterday. Uh, you know, the, our cardiothoracic surgeons, uh, you know, end up with the uh, aortic bleeds, aortic aneurysms, and, and <coughs> the ones that are non-surgical. So they do use it in tests. The surgeons, if they're involved, I know use it even in a non-surgical patient. I'm not 100% sure if the GI, GI guys have adopted it here, Mark. Or? Well, uh, gastroenterologists have become technicians with scopes in that critical care physicians should be doing that, and I don't think I get any argument from you folks or from the gastroenterologist. Uh, we just had a Zenker's diverticulin that nearly bled to death while on Coumadin two days ago, and they ordered serial tags as they resuscitated that patient. That patient received prothrombic complex concentrate, number one. Uh, number two, three days ago, we had a patient with a, a, a AAA that ruptured that was diagnosed in the ER with a FAST, and we called our trauma surgeon, Dr. Thomas, who's the, the visionary, the, folks, the, the guy who brought this from Iraq, Afghanistan to South Bend, and uh, they use serial tags preoperatively, operatively and postoperatively to resuscitate that patient. <clears throat> and we've had patients with gastrointestinal bleeding at the, at the, at the end of life who we have brought back, uh, very similar to Angela, using tag-guided blood component therapy. And I might add, in very few of those patients was there fibrinolysis. And so we, we withheld tranexamic acid which has profound implications, for example, for someone who would be hypercoagulable after resuscitation, such as uh, women with amniotic fluid embolism. So yes, we use this often. Uh, thank you so much, guys. Angela, are you still there? Yes. I just wanted to follow up with you in, um, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Complete and total reversal of, of any ill effects, the uh, renal failure. I was only in dialysis for, I think, two weeks once I was released from the hospital. Um, in all, I was here uh, for 13 days. Like I said, um, no lapses in memory, no problems in terms of my neurological function. Um, I'm back and working you know, full-time. Um, so couldn't be better, and the baby is progressing exactly as he should be. Um, and I just, I know that if I had been anywhere else, I wouldn't be here talking to you today. So I'm very, very thankful uh, to the team here, and definitely credit Teg uh, with being able to save my life. Well, thank you so much um, for sharing your story, and um, Dr. Hurwitz, Dr. Walsh, Drs. McCarty, Lantry, uh, thank you all for put, putting this together. Um, it's it's been a lot of fun talking tag, but uh, also bringing it bringing it to life with uh, the story of uh, Miss Angela Knight. So, anything else to add? No. Thank you all. It's, uh, it's a pleasure talking to you, and uh, uh, wish you luck with the, your continued success. And I want to thank Dr. Greenwood as well because he had a little bit of role to play in this. <laughs> so that's it. Thanks so much, everyone. See you next time.